Good evening, or good afternoon, I should say. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this event. This is a joint event. We are hosting it. Latrobe Asia is hosting it with the Australia India Institute. Uh, and today we are talking about school sport for development in India. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University here in Melbourne. And I would like to start this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land uh, upon which we meet today. And I would like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are present tonight. So it is uh, my great pleasure to welcome you to this launch of the Latrobe Asia Brief number nine, School Sport for Development in India, which has been authored by Biju Philip, um, Nikhil Jar, and Greg Dingle. So sport provides many benefits to learning, including through the development of communication, problem solving and teamwork skills. And this brief argues that in the context of India, sport could be used as a more active part of the curriculum to engage activity-based learning initiatives and improve the quality of school education. While India is populist, uh, populous, multilinguistic and culturally diverse. It is a sport-loving nation. And this afternoon, we will unpack the ways in which India uh, can use sport as a tool to engage children and adults for increased social participation, livelihoods, development and community connections. But we will also expand on this thinking to consider how sport can strengthen people-to-people -people and bilateral connections across Australia and India. So I would like to uh, introduce our esteemed panel uh, this evening. First, I'd like to introduce the Honourable Lisa Singh, who is the CEO of the Australia India Institute uh, and former Senator in Australian Federal Parliament for the State of Tasmania from 2011 until 2019, uh, and also Australia's first female federal parliamentarian of Indian descent. Lisa is a good friend of ours at La Trobe Asia, and so very always good to work with you on a events. I would then like to introduce Dr. Biju Philip from the Latrobe Business School at Latrobe University, who has been our Latrobe Asia Fellow this year and is the primary author of the brief that we are discussing today. So if you haven't had a chance to, uh, to grab yourself a copy of the brief, there are uh, copies up the back there. Uh, and I've got a copy here. This is what it looks like. It's a really interesting read. So congratulations, Biju, on, uh, on the research that sits behind this policy brief. His co-author is Dr Greg Dingle, who is an academic in the uh, Latrobe Business School uh, and is focused on sport and climate change. And Greg is a contributing author on the brief, and it's always good to have you along uh, for Latrobe Asia events as well. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to introduce David Hussey, who is Victoria's Head of Male Cricket and has held senior leadership roles as BBL Head Coach of the Melbourne Stars and as an assistant coach with the Kolkata Knight Riders in the Indian Premier League. David has also represented Australia internationally in one-day cricket and T20 cricket. Great to have you with us, David. 
Now, we will uh, begin the proceedings today with um, some comments first by Lisa Singh before we turn it to a panel discussion. So, as always, at La Trove Asia events, we will have time for Q&A at the end. So, please, um, you know, have a think about what questions you like to ask as we go through. But, Lisa, I'll pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Beck, and thank you to La Trobe Asia for organising with us this important event to, to really delve deeper into this important policy brief on school sport for development in India. I'd like to just start by acknowledging that we are here on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to any First Nations people joining us today. Um, also to, to the authors, uh, two of which are, are here with us today, to, to Biju and to Greg, congratulations on this publication. And, and David Hussey, it's, it's fantastic to have you here as the head of male cricket and cricket Victoria. I think this, this new publication is a really valuable piece of research and I'm looking forward to delving a bit further into the topic because it does shed light on the very positive impact that sport uh, on learning and community in India can play. I think the authors have undertaken a really essential study, not only analysing the challenges but also obviously benefits of school sport programs but also outlining steps for improvement uh, including the role that Australia can play in this context. And I think those those sorts of uh, contributions they've made will pave the way for brighter sort of school education through sport, which we know has so many benefits. Um, but this is also about looking at the impact of bilateral research, uh, something that La Trobe Asia and the Australian Institute do a lot of, and in terms of collaboration, collaboration where we can leverage the expertise and resources of both nations to achieve that greater progress, progress that we want to see in key areas of priority and that's going to lead to lasting social and economic outcomes for both of our nations. Um, I probably won't go too deep into the Institute's work, but only to say that we do have four program areas. One of them is security and geopolitics. One is in the more bilateral economy or trade and investment space. One is cultural diplomacy. And the biggest one of our areas of, of, of work is international education. And when I was thinking about this particular policy brief today, I actually could say it cuts across all of them yeah. uh, in some shape or form. And that just shows you the sorts of convergence of, of our sort of program areas or the ways in which our countries uh, bilaterally connect with each other on so many different sectors today and sports being a key one of them. So, look, I think, you know, really excited to sort of delve into this spec uh, as we go forward and eager to learn a lot more from, from the experts uh, on today's panel and, and hearing about sort of future research opportunities and engagement uh, that we can do particularly uh, together on, on our bilateral relationship. Thank you. Now, if I can ask you to pass that microphone down to uh, B2. Uh, as the lead author, I would like to begin the very basic question about the collaborative research that you undertook uh, as the basis of this brief. Where were you studying? Why? What's the? Where, where does this research come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, years back, um, as a student, I first came here uh, for um, 
SMANS, that is uh, Sport Management Association, New Zealand and Australia. So first time I met um, Professor Jeff and he asked me, tell me the story how a professional accountant moved to sport development. I still remember asking you asking that question. Yeah. So um, I was an accountant um, with Melbourne University, um, but my upbringing uh, is based on um, biblical principles, giving is better than uh, receiving. Also in India, our cultural, um, there is one nishkama kama, means you do your job without expecting anything in return. I did all my schooling in India and uh, first degree and master's. This is all freely given, public institution. I worked in India only for two years. So it was always, and I left India after that. So I never given anything really back to India. That was there for me always, actually. I never given anything back to India because all free education I enjoyed and I left India. So that is the beginning of the story. I will connect that into it. So as like any Australian family, especially we have three boys, they play all type of sports. So my Saturdays and the evenings mostly was somewhere in a sports field, little athletics or soccer ground or somewhere. So I became an athletic coach, a soccer coach, administrator for uh, community clubs. So my life started, even though professionally I earned money through accounting, through sport a lot, involvement with community sport in Australia, Victoria. So two incidents I would like to highlight that started helping me to rethink again. One was when I was coaching at Bullion Soccer Club as a soccer coach. One mom walked in and said once, Biju, thank you for the, all the technical side of uh, soccer you are doing to my son, but you have an amazing influence on our son. And uh, she explained a few things. I'm not going into that. Same year or next year, the coaching director there forwarded an email to me with the caption, oh God, who will help Indian soccer? So that was an email actually written by then um, Indian senior coach telling the real problem he is facing to choose the right team to compete internationally. So his major argument in that email was grassroots football is not happening so I can't pick maybe uh, 25 good players in India to compete internationally. So basically, community soccer or grassroots soccer needed to happen. And I'm a grassroots soccer coach here in Melbourne. So now I connect these two stories back to say, answer. I never given anything back to India. So I'm a soccer coach here. What should I do? So this was always there. That's why I decided to leave accounting job and start a PhD with the Center for Sport and Social Impact, actually. Um, from there, um, we have done a collaborative uh, effort with um, Australia, um, Latrobe, um, um, Latrobe University um, Sport um, uh, for our foundation and uh, an organization in India called Neelagri Vainad Tribal Welfare Society and implemented a sport for development program and I visited there four times, lived with them. At least every visit I will be with, staying with them for two, three weeks and collected data, a longitude study, 
that was my PhD. So I will explain more on maybe um, when you continue the question, what is portfolio development? If I can follow up on that, uh, it would be good to get a sense at this point um, from you what the kind of key arguments you make in the brief. I mean, the, the purpose of the Latrobe Asia brief is to really provide um, an outline of a key issue and then to provide recommendations or findings and recommendations that can help um, shape and influence policy in particular areas. So um, could you just run us through briefly some of, uh, because, you know, you those of us who are in the audience in the room, you, you'll have a sense of what those recommendations are by flicking through the brief. Uh, but for those particularly um, joining online, what are the key findings and recommendations that you make? So I just give a brief outline or definition of academic definition of sport for, um, you know, uh, sport for development. So I need to move away from David to explain that, actually because David is a representative of elite form of sport. So sport for development is not elite. Elite, the competition part of it, we try to avoid in sport for development. Inclusion, equity, that's the two aspect. So what happens is when David pick a team for his elite competition, he has to say no to certain people. That is not good. So, so we normally say sport is fantastic. Yes, sport is fantastic. But if you shape such a way, so that shaping is sport for development. So when it comes to sport for development, two outcomes must be sure. One is the sport itself and the development outcome. That development outcome, I can brief a bit more of what it is. That could be health out outcome, physical health, mental health, social health. So... One of the outcomes of my study is social health, social inclusion, social space. And uh, when we talk about India, I mean, I think some of the faces represent the physical education in school is not fully developed like Australian context, actually. So it may be like an annual day or something like that. That is physical education or just run maybe once in a week. So what we found is, so our program was done in three schools and a community. What we found is when you play and after the game, you sit with teachers and you say some personal stories and that will help you to connect much more, deeper way. And that is a social space sports can create. So it is not just playing alone. Our social connection in increases because we play regularly. We meet them. We interact them all. Oh, in a soccer terms, I can say, if somebody gives the best pass and uh, I was able to score, I'm always thankful for that, that connection itself. So um, that is one of the elements. Another thing is, so I give the analogy that elite sport and uh, David sport, actually, that is the best way to say. So we can only a small number of people playing that sport. But if you use sport for development, a large number of people can play because inclusion is the way. The way the people, the crowd needed, we can shape the sport. So if somebody with disability, yes, we can do that for them. Or you are going to empower girls, you can do that. Or 
if a community, for example, a Hindu community or Christian community wanted to do some program to connect with community, to know more about them, they can do as well sport. So you can, sport for development, the beauty with that is you can shape the program, whatever outcome you expect to get that development outcome. But sport is a tool for development. And the last part of it, social connection, uh, skill development, knowledge, skills, and abilities development in community. We have seen that because I have implemented, we have implemented a peer coaching model. So when you do peer coaching, knowledge transfer is happening. So you are developing people, power need to be transferred. So a number of articles I am working on and published on this as well. But we really see sport. One of the outcomes of my study is sport can be used for activity-based learning. So simple example I will tell and I will um, stop, uh, stop here. If you take a soccer ball, a cricket ball, and a basketball, in a primary context, just bounce it, or under footy ball, just bounce it, and ask the children, why students, why this is bouncing differently. That's it's a physics in it. You understand what I'm trying to say? But this is should be a community of practice to communities of practice to do it because teachers' knowledge, students' pedagogical building, or people, um, some external agents working together. That is the ventures has to happen. That's what my argument. This is not only good for India, this is good for Australia as well. So I really think that school to school connection, if anybody online thinking that how my school can build it, school to school connection, it is not okay. India is a developing country, go and develop. No, you learn a lot through that process as well. And uh, I'm interested to work in that space as well. Thank you. Uh, well, Greg, I might bring you in here. You're a co-author and uh, your research actually looks a lot at sport and climate change. So I'm wondering about what the relationship between um, school sport for development is and what your involvement in the project was and how that might relate to issues of things like sustainability. Thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, good question. Uh, well, to start with my involvement in the project, uh, uh, of course, Bijou had, had done all uh, the hard work, and so he uh, very generously invited me to make a contribution to the, to the policy brief. Um, I think one of the, the really interesting things about sport is that it has the capacity to uh, extend and develop human beings you know, it, um, in, in a range of ways. And um, in order to um, to understand the link between that and my research, um, um, my my area is sport and climate change. What are, what are the um, uh, the impacts of uh, a more extreme climate on, on sport? Uh, what are the risks? Um, what are some of the hazards? Um, and what's some of the adaptation that is possible? Now, um, one of the other common features of sport is that it's typically, although not universally, a climate-exposed activity. Most sport is done outdoors. And so if you do it outdoors, you're out in the climate, which means you get the benefits of uh, weather, which is not too extreme, but you get the challenges that, that come with um, uh, extremes, so extremes of heat, extremes of rainfall, those sorts of things. Um, one of the the really interesting things that I think that that I've seen emerge during my time in in, in this field is the capacity for 
climate extremes, particularly heat, but also rainfall to disrupt sporting activities. Um, uh, it, in the research that I've done suggests that it, this, these disruptions uh, occur in three main domains. It uh, disrupts or um, present risks to um, individual participants, um, people, uh, athletes, coaches and officials. Um, it can be too hot to play or too wet to play, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, then there's risks for facilities. If you think about uh, cricket fields that, that are flooded by extreme rain or the same cricket fields which are hard, dry and, and compacted by drought conditions, and then there's the, the attendant sort of implications for sports organisations. So if you've got uh, a cricket club that's you've had your cricket uh, field uh, affected by drought conditions, such as we experienced during the Millennium Drought, or um, extreme rainfall, as we saw in northern New South Wales last year, that there are all sorts of um, operating costs and also capital costs that come, that come with that. So. When it came, to bring it back to sport for development, I think one of the interesting things for me is that um, sport for development is a desirable thing. We want to see more of that because of its capacity to develop human beings. But it's these extremes of climate that, pre that present some challenges. So it may be that the challenges are at the level of, human, of, of individuals, athletes, coaches, officials, um, it may be that the, the, the sporting fields are, are, um, are challenged by extremes and it may also be that the organisations that underpin the facilities and the, the individual's participation uh, are challenged uh, as well. So that, that's probably the, the intersection of my, my research and the, and the, and the work that, that Bijou's uh, been leading. Uh, so um, on that note, I probably think I'd hand it back to you. And, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to you uh, in a minute, but I think there's quite a lot of Australians who were hoping for extreme rainfall during the fourth test in uh, England not long ago. And so I'd like to bring David into the conversation here. I mean, you've played against India in one-day internationals in T20 as well as playing within the Indian Premier League. And as we were talking about just before this event started, I mean, that's huge, right? Like the Indian Premier League is just a, a massive uh, kind of league. And so I wanted to ask... Uh, you about your connection as an international cricketer with India, your personal sort of insights uh, into developing people-to-people -people relations uh, between, you know, uh, Australia uh, and India through sport. Thanks, Beck. Uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to be travelling to and from India since 1997, uh, fell in love with the country, uh, probably more so in, in 2008 onwards. Um, I played all over, uh, Kolkata, Mumbai, um, Mahali, and a little bit in Chennai as well. And um, I've got really close friends who are um, Indian, uh, from Indian descent. They played a lot for India uh, against Australia, which is quite interesting because Australia and India have uh, a great rivalry, especially in cricket. Um, but to create that relationship since 2008, um, when the IPL first started, you go walk in the dressing room and there's all these Westerners and there's all these Indians and they're both split up in one side of the dressing room. So it was up to um, us to create a relationship because we all have that one common goal of winning the, the whole of the IPL. And when you side up to um, a teammate and get to know his backstory, it's you realise that how important cricket is uh, in the greater scheme of things. It teaches resilience. Um, sport in general uh, teaches resi resilience, uh, common goals, uh, determination, uh, and values and principles actually, which last not only within the cricket field but also in later later on in life as well. So. 
I got to play with some of the greats as in Ajit Agarka, Ishan Sharma, Shubhan Gill, um, Akash Chopra, who's a good friend of mine still now. So uh, I'm very blessed to uh, spend a lot of time in India and spend time with some of the, uh, the, the greats of Indian cricket. And I hope I continue going back to India for many years to come. And you also uh, obviously have a lot of sort of leadership, mentoring roles within the cricket. I mean, Victoria cricket, but also uh, in India. So I wanted to ask for your views on some of the key findings that the brief has made around the positive benefits of sport in education, in community building, in community cohesion from the perspective of, of kind of leadership within cricket. Yeah, it's a fantastic study, actually. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be uh, spend three years at Kolkata Knight Riders as their assistant coach to Brendan McCullum. Um, it felt like we had half the coaching staff were Westerners, um, mainly Kiwis, and the other half were of Indian descent. So, and I was a batting coach and, and sort of chief mentor. That was my role. And you walk, you pretty much work with uh, the best players in the world, um, like the Shreyas Ayers of the world. He was our captain of the, at the time. To the Rinko Singhs who were coming through. And there's so many difficulties all the way through. Some are educated, some aren't educated. Um, the language barriers, and you've got to create a trust very, very quickly. Um, I became really, really close with Natesh Rana and Rinku Singh. They were sort of my, my two buddies that I used to always go to. And the way I created that relationship was to be vulnerable, um, open up, create a trust, um, and sort of explain your fears, what you went through as a, as a player, and share that common goal, common ground of uh, what they go through, what they're fearing out in the cricket field. And I think creating that trust actually went a long way to um, us achieving a few goals in order we finished runners-up one year in the IPL, which was a fantastic effort. But to create that trust, um, which we still keep in contact now which is fantastic um but the values and the principles that we created all the way through for the for the three years that i was with kolkata was fantastic and they still stand us in good stead to today the language barrier is probably the biggest thing the biggest issue that we had but to get around that we had um people who were educated and who could speak english and could actually uh, become that translator between rinku singh and myself or had the young members of the squad as well but the goal for me as a mentor as a coach was to make them or allow them to become the best cricketer they possibly could be, but also the best person they could possibly be, and that means giving back to the team. So we live by the uh, the theme or the motto of uh, what's um, – I'll get this wrong. I'll get it the wrong way around. But it's not what you can do – sorry, it's not what the team can do for you. It's what the team – what you can do for the team, if that makes sense. So I'll – that's what we live by, and uh, we all bought in that common goal. Whether you're a Westerner, whether you're from Indian descent, uh, we all bought in, and with that, we end up having a, a little bit of success now. But the value of sport and value of cricket through all over the world is uh, paramount, and uh, it's the, the common language that we actually speak to today. Thank you. And I think, um, Beja, it's really interesting. I hadn't heard that you were an accountant before. I didn't know that, but that um, part of the reason that you you sort of got into this research was um, because you you were, you know, coaching and, and that's that's what led your interest. And, Greg, I believe that you've also been a sports coach uh, in school. So, I mean, what is your experience uh, in relation to that? Tell us about the importance of the sport education um, development nexus. Okay. Uh, thanks, Beck. Well, um, just a, a little bit of background about myself. I, I, I played club cricket in Melbourne for about 20 years, um, just at, I guess, at Park level, I suppose you call it, um, not elite level like, like David. Um, uh, I also played a little bit of football as a, uh, a very modest um, 
uh, defensive midfielder, shall we say. So, um, but uh, I've also done some coaching in in schools. So I used to work um, uh, uh, a private school, uh, a couple of private schools in in Melbourne, doing some uh, cricket coaching and football coaching with um, teenage boys. Um, so second secondary school. Uh, boys and, and some Aussie rules as as well. And it's anyone who's done some sports coaching, I'm sure you will agree with me, is that whilst it's really challenging, it's also really, really rewarding um, because you do see young people uh, develop. You see, uh, you see how animated they are by by sport. Um, just to, and just to, to just to digress just a, a little, I just thought we might share uh, some really interesting insights from the research literature about. About the role of sport in 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 the development of of young people, particularly children, and particularly through uh, physical education. Now, um, some of the research literature tells us there are there are actually five domains that that physical education, particularly sport focused physical education, can make a contribution to the development of, of a, a young person um, cognitively. Um, uh, it helps uh, develop our, our neural pathways, for example, socially, uh, developing connections uh, with others, uh, lifestyle. Uh, it helps to shape our, our life choices, uh, career possibilities down down the track. Um, physically, uh, as 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 well, um, but also in the, the affective domain, it, it's, it has a, a role in affecting um, our emotional uh, development. Now. Um, and if you think about it, sport is an in, uh, inherently emotional experience. It's like, like every time you play sport, especially competitive sport, and there's someone winning, someone losing, and there's all sorts of attendant emotions that, that, that go with that. So in that in that sort of sort of uh, uh, context, um, my experience is that sport does make a contribution in most of those those domains. It's not. Um, uh, the same for every human being. Um, humans develop at different uh, different uh, rates and, and in different different ways. But sport is a fantastic thing. It develops social capital as as well. Um, um, playing club cricket and club club football. Um, it, it's if you walk into a club, certainly in Australia, uh, you meet people. You you develop connections. You start. Uh, playing with them and practicing uh, with them, you're winning and you're losing, and then you develop attachment and bonds with them. And, and some of which is that David has uh, alluded to with or talked about um, in the EPL. Sport does all of these things for people, and it does it particularly well for children. Maybe not perfectly, but it's um, but it, uh, most of the time for most. Uh, children, it, it's particularly positive experience. And one of the interesting things about Bijou's um, work is that it's it's really starting to to bring out some of the possibilities um, in in India, in Indian school context. And I, and I think this is one of the really exciting things about sport for development uh, in an Indian context. Thank you, Greg. Uh, just a, a reminder, we will have time for Q&A. So for those of you who are joining us online, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box um, and, and I can get to them uh, later. And we do actually in the room here have uh, one of our sport diplomacy experts, Jeff. So 
in a little bit, I'm going to ask you if you wanted to comment on the importance of, of sport and diplomacy. But before I get to that, uh, I wanted to get back to you, Lisa. I mean, more broadly, uh, sport has been an important part of Australia and India's relationship. Uh, and when Modi, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, was in Australia uh, earlier this year, talked about the three Cs, the Commonwealth, Curry and Cricket. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think when we've heard today that the the kind of the, the way that cricket can create that kind of connective tissue, but it's also important that in the in the sense of the bilateral relationship that it's not just about cricket. And Biju's talked about soccer, for example, but also about how we use that to then build a stronger bilateral relationship. Thanks, Beck. And I, I will notice that um, the Latrobe Asia Reef cover hasn't gone with a cricket uh, image. It's gone, it's gone with the soccer image. So there you are, Vijay, you won out there. <laughs> but I have to say, just looking at that image, it's a fantastic um, cover of young Indian boys playing soccer. It did remind me of, and David, you relate to this, of, you know, of, of Mumbai and all that big open field of so many young people playing, girls and boys playing cricket. Um, you know, it, having space, I think, is what we, we really need to factor in here. And I'm sure you have um, Biju um, and Greg in this in, in terms of the, the climate risks, climate change risks in that sense, or, but also just the, the need for space for when it comes to enabling um, sport and being in Australia and, and in India something for local government to really factor in there. But I, getting back to your question, Beck, I, I just wanted to to really recognise, I guess, moving beyond the three Cs, if we can, to, to what came out of the last census in Australia, which was, you know, a quarter of us in Australia are born overseas um, and that out of that, um, you know, other than England, the most common or origin of foreign-born Australians was from India. And I really see that Indian diaspora here in Australia as an incredible asset in terms of building a bridge between our two countries and I think we'll see more and more of them participate, uh, as Bijou has, in, in, in the sort of sporting fraternity here in Australia because they do also bring uh, that sense of community through sport here uh, as part of our Indian diaspora. At the moment, that represents, well, at the time of the census, it was um, 710,000 people of Indian origin living in Australia. Um, that that doubled from 2011, um, but today it's it's regarded as just under a million. So it's even increased since the last census in those couple of years to 976,000 people identifying of, of having Indian ancestry. So they really are a national asset here in Australia for us in building that bridge. Uh, of course, we we talk about the trading relationship with India. Part of that trading relationship is about education services. And we in Australia have some fantastic educational facilities. We're sitting in one of them right now here uh, at La Trobe University. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the role in terms of increasing the quality of education for people in Australia and India through sport is just a no-brainer and something that I know this report really picks up on. Thank you, Lisa. Look, I know it's unusual to start Q&A with me asking an audience member a question, but Jeff Dixon from the Latrobe Business School is with us and an expert in sport diplomacy. I just wanted to, yeah. if you had any thoughts on this topic as well. 
Uh, thanks, Beck. I'll just come forward so the uh, the camera can pick me up for the people at home. Uh, sport diplomacy is basically a, a, you call it a sport for development type thing, just as you have sport for education, sport for health. Think of sport for diplomacy. And uh, we were commissioned by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to develop a massive open online course uh, to enhance the uh, sport diplomacy skills of Australian athletes, coaches and administrators. Uh, the opportunity, I think, in the context of this conversation is to is how we can uh, leverage that capacity to enhance the capacity of India's sport diplomacy. We have some skills we know how to teach and educate, uh, and I think the opportunity that we developed a, a year or two ago, Beck, is, is still valid insofar as it, we, could, we, La Trobe University, for example, could go to India, engage in sport diplomacy, and ironically by enhancing the sport diplomacy capacity of the Indian sports system, uh, utilising our course, our skills, our research, et cetera, et cetera. What's the downstream effect of that? Enhanced trade uh, between the two nations or India's capacity to engage with, enhance their trade with anybody that they are playing sport against uh, to enhance the soft power capacity of both both countries. What is soft power? Soft power is the ability to get other countries to act in your interests without waving a big stick in the form of tanks and bombs or trade sanctions. It's at the completely opposite end of the spectrum where people listen to what you have to say, like what you're hearing, because you're perceived as what I would call a good bloke. Happy, you know, you're a cool country. Yep, we'll, we'll listen to you because you're interesting and you're nice, not because you're waving a big stick. So that's what sport diplomacy is all about. Sport's a powerful tool, just as it can change education. It can uh, provide opportunities for education. It can also provide an opportunity for enhanced diplomatic relationships between countries. Thank you. And if you'll pardon the pun, you're a good sport for coming up here and answering that question. Uh, but we do have some time for a Q&A, so I'm going to invite uh, members of the audience here in the room uh, to ask questions. I can see, I can see your tentative hand raised there. Please ask your question. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you once again. It was great to hear from everybody on the panel. Um, I just had a really quick question just about, um, as you said, vulnerability is key in sport in connecting. Um, I just wanted to ask what other um factors were considered or studied in this research, um, I guess, besides sport that really create that connection and that team bonding that we're talking about for the rural schools? Uh, so, BG, did you want to take that question? Thank you for the question. I mean, scientific research, I haven't studied anything outside sport, but when I was doing the sports program, so if you understand the rural community in India, girls normally don't play sport, actually. So one thing that not used to, and also there were nobody to coach from a female leader. I mean, similar thing in Australia, we had shortage of female coaches as well. So again, I said sports can be shaped such a way. So we had an evening kind of non-sport activities. Part of this was a camp, three nights, two nights, three days camp. So part of that, we had evening sessions. So 
this is with tribal community so they had number of uh, indigenous uh, songs and uh, drums and all and also bollywood dances that all were led by female um, you know girls uh, in that uh, context there so when we call sport for development sport it is a very different type of definition of what elite sport is doing i'm pointing at david because david is the elite person that's right so the, so you can have a board game um so that is also a sport actually you can have a dance session it is a sport so very broad definition for sport for development that was earlier i didn't make that clear uh, but sport is very fluid and you can uh, have any kind of thing so dance singing all these things can come as uh, sport if you add a bit of competition or challenges with that did i answer your question i might stick with you biju because we have a question online and it is about uh the opinion of I can ask it, anybody who wants to take uh, this question, but I'll start with you, Biju, uh, about instilling sport and its culture in rural schools in India and the ones particularly whether there are uh, not expensive options because uh, the person who is asking the questions are running, um, have, running a school in Kola and need help to instill a sportive culture. So I wonder whether you have any ideas about that. so the first and foremost thing we talk about is when overseas agents go to a country you go for the sport the community accept so if we are going from australia we like cricket it doesn't mean that that community like cricket okay there are a lot of research evidence australia went to fiji try to implement cricket and it didn't work so i can uh, bring so culturally accepted sport must be the sport next question economic value i really think we need to relook into what is sport and uh, if i get a second option i might go for frisbee it is not because my children is playing because cost so just a plastic disc it will last for a long time so i use soccer balls every 6 months you need at least 2000 3000 dollars to replace it without ball you can't play so that is a very good question I, i can't see who asked this but i'm telling you you should see multiple sport and a cost effective sport some of the new sports like frisbee and um, um uh, you know bouncy balls all these are fantastic ball, uh, balls uh, sport actually you can use and it will last um, um more so also i suggest multiple sport use rather than going for one sport Uh, and David I wonder whether you have any thoughts on kind of cost effective ways of building sporting culture but also wanted to come back to um Jeff was talking about sort of sports diplomacy and wonder about you know whether you as an international sportsman it was ever thought that you would be a kind of diplomatic tool like did you think of yourself as a representative of Australia in a kind of diplomatic sense and were you given tools or given um training or anything in in how to kind of represent a nation in that kind of way well hard hitting question thank you um no no training uh but we all share the same common interest so wherever we traveled all over the world to all over the world we always uh, played very hard on the field and you wanted to win but 
most importantly, off the field, you get on with the opposition and you get to find out about them, create a relationship with them because you just never know where the world's going to go. Um, like I was saying before, fortunately, I, I played against Ajit Agarka and Akash Chopra and we probably didn't like each other on the field, but off the field, uh, we got on famously and when we got selected by the Kolkata Knight Riders in 2008, we had the common goal of winning the IPL. So... We had to get on with each other pretty quickly in order to uh, have that common goal of winning the IPL or the team was going to fold. So um, fortunately, the way I grew up, uh, you, you treat everybody equally and with respect and uh, you get to know each other quite well and create that relationship through vulnerability, through uh, shared fears and uh, and through shared common goals. Um, so being a diplomat, no, I didn't really think of it like that. I just thought of it as um, they're my teammates. I'll do anything for them in order to win the game of cricket. And that's no different to when you play cricket for Australia or for your state in Victoria. Whatever game you play, you, you try and do your best for your team uh, effectively. In terms of playing in multiple sports, I agree with the uh, doctor here. You should play a variety of sports, get you outdoors, get off screens. And uh, I really enjoyed playing football growing up. Uh, it was a really cheap sport. You only needed one football, which is quite handy. Whereas cricket, you need bats, balls, uh, gloves, pair um yeah, pads, helmets. Um, so it's quite an expensive sport that is. So to my parents' disgust. So yeah, play a variety of sports. Enjoy, um, enjoy all sports, and you never know. You, you might uh, find your calling in, in one particular sport, like uh, frisbee, for example. Uh, just sticking with you because we do have a question about whether or not uh, when you were at uh, the the night riders, whether you were uh, able to go out into the rural schools and 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 villages and connect on that level. Uh, thanks. Um, so I was at Kolkata Night Riders as a player from 2008 to 2010. Um, unfortunately, in 2009, the tournament got shifted to South Africa, so we weren't actually in India then. But 2008. Um, the team and I, we, we were fortunate enough to go out to two schools and the name escapes me in Kolkata. Um, they were eye-opening, um, I, I won't lie. They were quite different or quite a contrast to the schools that I went to in Australia. Um, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and I went to a Catholic school, so not a great school, but not a, a poor school either. It was just an even, even school. And the two schools we went to, we had a, a cricket uh, clinic. We were there for an hour and they were eye-opening only because uh, both male and female, they did play, um, and female cricket probably wasn't as popular back then as what it is now. Um, but what I did notice is that once the kids got out of the classroom, the smiles on the kids' faces, they wanted to play sport, they wanted to play cricket, and um, just to see some of their idols like the Ajitagaka, Surab Gangulis of the world, um, yeah, the, the smiles still stick with me today. So very, very fortunate to uh, live those, uh, the dreams of going to uh, some of the Indian schools over there. Uh, thank you. We do have, oh, we've got a question up the back. Okay, thank you. Hi, I'm Nathan Grills. Uh, thank you, Biju. It's an amazing area of work. Having seen it develop over the last uh, 15 years, you've really just been very persistent in, in bringing this report together and your PhD. Uh, I guess my question is around disability and accessibility, particularly in rural India. Um, I think in the cities, you've got a very good disability uh, involvement in sport. You've got a very good, India's got a very good basketball team and a very good cricket team, the blind cricket team and the uh, wheelchair basketball team, and they do very well at the Paralympics. But how does that translate into rural areas in India where there's less awareness around disability and, and how, we, how do we encourage disability inclusion in school sports and sports in rural India? 
Before I go back to the panel, does are there any other questions? Ah, yes, one. Hi, uh, my question is actually to Biju. Uh, I'm interested to know about um, one whether there are any initiatives in place uh, to include sport in a formal school setting for well-being, skill development, and activity-based learning that you mentioned. And second part of the question is, are there any uh, structured programs to connect Indian schools and Australian schools that you alluded to earlier on? Thank you. That's a great question, and Just got one more question. Um, so I was just having a read of the brief and um, the researched states mentioned were primarily in the South. So um, I was just wondering whether there was any evidence or just research um, in other states of India as well, as we were speaking just before, that India is so culturally diverse. Um, even the smallest pockets are quite different to maybe something else that you may have experienced. So... Okay, that, they sound like three questions for you, Biju and Greg, if you wanted to comment as well. Yeah, thank you so much for Professor Grills. Um, if you do not know him, he's an expert in public health, actually. So from Melbourne University and Australian Indian Institute. Um, yeah, where one of the earlier mentors for me talking about this research and this plan, and it's a huge decision to move. To answer your question, what... Greg, myself, and a few others are trying to do. My research clearly indicating that school is a strategic location to do programs. So definitely the answer for disability, schools is a strategic location to start that. Sustainable development goals, number of sustainable development goals, including climate change. So what that means is education. So we can make our children, new generation aware that is a school is a strategic location that you need to do. You need to switch off the lights when you went out, walk out of the room. Simple, sustainable development goals. Public health, hygiene factors related to COVID. You need hygiene. You need to wash your hands after playing a sport game because these factors. So School is a strategic location to do education, not just academic education. We can do a number of things. It may take time, but I think bottom-up initiatives can complement with top-down initiatives. That is one of the arguments I make. But India has to go a long way. But I am happy that if you go to especially some of the southern states, number of modified scooters and for people with a disability to travel and all. Again, how much road safe they are, I'll be covering that type of questions we need to ask. So second question, sorry, I don't know your name. Well, yes. Um, my, so maybe I will add Parna's question as well. So I have done the first program in Chennai with the children from low socioeconomic background. Then the next one was Odisha. Odisha also considered us South actually. Um, not consider it is South. So I never get a real opportunity to go to the North. 
Nathan Grills works a lot, invested his time and effort in North India. And we number of times we discuss about going to Jharkhand and another other places. He goes to the beautiful parts of India. <laughs> so asking me to go and do program, but it didn't eventuate that way. So to answer some of the people here in this room itself, they have very good connection. Australia India Institute, they have very good connection to India. But what I have seen, um, uh, so North, none of the study has uh, done in the North part of uh, India, but I have done a program in Thailand. And uh, so I have some evidence, um, children live on rubbish dump. I have done a program there as well, connecting, helping, giving. And the, the answer cost effective one more, my model was peer coaching model. So you build coaches within cost effectiveness, volunteerism, I have publications on that as well. So um, Melbourne University has connection to some of the city schools in Delhi uh, through Australia India Institute. They are doing programs. But another modern way I see is the school. I'm not mentioning which school. Uh, my children study. They go to some of the Asian countries and exchange programs. So this is all possible. Um, we can do that. Um, another question you ask any model of um, you know, activity-based learning. So my argument, this is India we need to understand. India is linguistically multicultural. India is different. If you go to one place, one state to another, number of differences are there. So what happens in one place or one school may not be very applicable in other schools. When I say school, you may wonder what you mean. So the location I went is Nilgiris. I worked with three schools. One is a private school, Catholic school. Two are indigenous, Adivasi schools, indigenous schools. It is very different school and schooling there. It's all maybe 20 kilometers uh, surrounded, but the Students are different. As uh, David said, first generation may be the difficulty with language he mentioned. Teachers' qualification may be different. So that also I have uh, touched on different school education system in India. So some are, I mean, we have world's top leaders from India. We have uh, world's uh, top CEOs from India. So India has very good education, you know. But when you go to some of the schools, uh, I can very surely say if you come out of school, you may not never get a job as well. You know what I mean? That type of education also there. So everything is different. So teachers, agents like us, external agents, internal agents, and students. And I also think that's why it is a strategic location. You can bring parents into school. Soccer, they love to play soccer. So some of the parents, it was their dream. I met some of them. Yeah, sir, I like. So you can bring them. They may not talk a lot about education, but if you talk about some of the sports they like, they they talk. That is the connection I'm talking about. Thank you, BG. Uh, Craig, I'll give you a chance to, to comment on those questions as well and any final thoughts that you might have. Sure. Um, just to come back to... Um, well, let me make a more general point. Now, um, one of the things that we know from reams of research is that if you 
if your goal is to encourage people to participate in sport, whether it's really competitive sport or less, less formal sport, um, there's, there's two things that need to be addressed. One is uh, uh, barriers and enablers. So you want to remove the barriers and develop as many enablers as, as possible. Um, now, uh, uh, disabilities can be a barrier uh, to participating in sport for obvious reasons, but it can also be an opportunity. So um, uh, I'm not, uh, I haven't actually been to, to the, the sites that uh, Bijou talked about in, in India, so I can't comment on them specifically. But one thing we do know uh, from reams of research and our experience in Australia is if, if you want to include a person uh, in sport with a disability, well, then you uh, think about the, what gets in the way. If, it, if it's, it could be something, if they're a person with a wheelchair disability, sorry, um, a mobility disability, they're in a wheelchair, then, then providing some infrastructure, simple things like uh, ramps in, into club facilities, uh, those sorts of things. Um, another uh, is those cultural barriers. Now, um, as Lisa pointed out before, about 25% of all Australians um, are born overseas. And one of the key barriers to, to joining a club in Australia is, is language barriers. You just, if you don't speak, uh, speak, speak English, that, that's a barrier. So I think um, anything that uh, overcomes language barriers is always uh, a positive. Um, I might just quickly just draw on my experience in another uh, Asian context, which was actually Hong Kong many, many years ago. I was actually doing some cricket coaching in the city of Hong Kong, glorious place. Uh, we were, and I was working with the Hong Kong Cricket Association. So we were taking cricket to the schools, which are, and the Cantonese population are not immersed in, in cricket. It's really an English thing, of course. So what we did was we went to schools um, and a lot of the schools there have very small physical spaces. And so we didn't have big open fields to play cricket on, but we had basketball courts. And so one of the barriers to playing cricket was a lack of space, but we were able to, to figure out that you actually can play cricket uh, on a basketball court, just like kids do um, in the in the backyard, those those sorts of things. So I, I think um, to, just to come back to um, the, 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 side, the side of the study, there is a lot that can be done. It does require some uh, creative thinking sometimes, but you can uh, overcome disabilities. You can enable people to participate. You can overcome barriers. It just requires a little bit of persistence and, and a little bit of creativity, no matter the context. Thank you. Now, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, if there were any other questions from our audience in the room, if not, I might actually ask one last question of you, Lisa. Uh, we have, you know, produced a, a policy brief here with Latrobe, with Bijou and Greg and um, co-author. Well, the question is, how can the policy recommendations in this brief be heard more effectively by governments, like in India? How do we get this message for a sort of multiple impact, do you think? Thank you, Beck. That's a great question. And, um, you know, I think one of the key roles for us as an institute and, and I know for other sorts of um, research uh, centres and think tanks in, in Australia and in India is exactly that. How do we, how do we ensure that we give research life and, and that it feeds into government policy? One of the ways in which we do that at the Australia India Institute is through policy dialogue that is made up of representatives, what we call a track 1.5 dialogue. So it's made up of 
government officials as well as business um, uh, heads uh, as well as academia. So between now and November, I'm running three of those <laughs> uh, in India and in Australia, but they are the opportunities in which we can really, you know, make sure the right people are around the table listening to the, the sorts of outcomes of research that we are doing in both of our countries. So definitely there are opportunities to do, to do that. Um, I think, though, it's also about making uh, the message really clear uh, uh, in the use of other medium like social media um, uh, to, to, to actually uh, get that forward and, and, and also through activities like we're doing right now that can actually be streamed into India as well and, and get to the right people at that level. I think one of the things, though, Beck, I take away from listening to to um, everyone here today is, is just the incredible... Um, you know the the incredible value of of sport for our two countries through addressing inequality, um, and I think that obviously extends to some of the issues that we've been raised in terms of disability, but also gender inequality, uh, particularly to say that at the moment um, with the FIFA Women's World Cup going on, but also you know just in terms of the fact that we know also India has you know nearly half of its population under the age of twenty five. So, yeah, I'm not saying that sport is just a young person's thing, but let's face it, uh, we're talking a lot today about the importance of, um, you know, improving childhood education, childhood development through sport. Uh, India's got a very large youthful population that can really benefit from that. So I think uh, the work that's been done here today has got still got a lot of uh, life and legs for, for you know to to grow into in terms of the bilateral connections of our two countries, and yeah, we can go from the, the elite level of David, and but then you know take what David's done to the coaching level, which goes more into the development space. So uh, I really don't think at, at what sort of sport we're talking about diversity, more diversity in sports, probably you know more more of a benefit for everybody. And congratulations on on those that have that have produce this today and yeah let's try and give it some life into government policy well that's a wonderful way to to wrap up and to summarize and build on the conversation that we have had and one of the the things that the, the points that i think is quite important that you made Biju, is to think about development not just in india but also in australia australia's development as as well um uh so I would like uh, to thank our esteemed panellists uh, and thank our audience for joining us uh, uh, at the City Campus today or online as well. Uh, please do follow us on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. Are we still calling it Twitter or is it now X? I'm not sure what Elon Musk is doing this week. Uh, but we, as long as Twitter survives, we are on it at Latrobe Asia. Or if you are not on our mailing list, please uh, join that to find out more details for events and for publications and for uh, things that we have coming up. But again, thank you to our panellists for sharing their insights and congratulations, Bijou Greg, on a fantastic uh, policy brief.